You're listening to the Tech Nest Podcast. You'll hear from PropTech founders, investors, and industry veterans on how they're using tech to change the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. This isn't just another podcast about making money in real estate. This is about how we live. In each episode, you'll hear about the market opportunities and trends driving the industry forward. TechNest is proudly produced by Finn Ledger in partnership with HW Media. And now your host, Nate Smoyer. Welcome back for another fun episode. I've got James Gershweiler, his Chief Strategy and Investment Officer at Catalyze. Catalyze is a renewable energy development independent power producer. They partner with medium to large commercial and industrial real estate groups. And they're focused on increasing net income and tenant value with renewable, resilient, smart energy infrastructure. And that means solar storage, electric vehicle charging, and microgrids. If you're anything like me, some of that may have went a little bit above your head. And James does a really amazing job of breaking down how Catalyze is breaking away and capitalizing on at least a trillion dollar opportunity here. One of the most exciting opportunities he's ever had. And he spent 20 some years, I believe he said in in, in venture capital. He previously worked in the public sector on an international level. And there's a lot of movement happening in the renewable energy space. I pose the question of, you know, when do you think 20% of commercial and industrial buildings in the United States will have some sort of solar energy system? And his answer was 2024, it's only two years away. And throughout the episode here in this interview, James will give you reasons to hear his argument as to why that's possible, and then hits you with the curveball of his own argument against that prediction. All right, but just one more thing here before we jump into today's episode, a word from our sponsor. Cure is banding together and building together to make renting a home a simple and satisfying experience for all. Over 30 leading property management companies have joined Pure so far. Combined, they have over 1,000 years of experience. They deliver a high-tech, high-touch, and hyper-local property management experience for residents and investors nationwide. Learn more about joining Pure at purepm.co. Hey, James. Welcome to the show. Hey, Nate. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for this. Uh, People don't understand. Two things get me really excited. One of them, I love doing podcast interviews. But also, James and I, before the show, I think we talked more about national parks than we did uh, in what we're going to actually discuss here and his company, Catalyze. Um, But uh, before we, we get into the details and finding everything out, as always, James, go ahead, introduce yourself, let everyone know who you are and what you do. Well, thanks, Nate. And again, I'm James Geschweiler. I am co-founder and chief strategy and investment officer for a company called Catalyze. Um, And to your point about national parks, this company makes my inner environmentalist and outdoorsman uh, equally happy with my inner capitalist uh, because our mission in, in this world 
is to develop renewable energy power plants in partnership with commercial real estate. Um, our tagline a bit is sustainability meets profitability. And it's because we're at this uh, tremendous moment in history where we're actually changing the nature of not one, but two fundamental infrastructures in America. And they converge at commercial and industrial real estate. And there's enormous amounts of money to be made. I love it. And there's, I feel like there's a hundred angles that we could actually take at this, but let's start with the highest up, you know, the hundred thousand foot view, if you will. What is the problem catalyzed the solving for? Well, when you ask the problem first is, well, who are your customers and, and what are their needs? And Catalyze, as a renewable energy developer, partners with medium to large commercial real estate groups, uh, also regional energy developers. And the problem that we're usually solving for most of these real estate groups is helping them make more money. Uh, simply put, and we'll kind of get into why there's this fundamental change, we help our commercial real estate partners access the capital markets, which are increasingly demanding quantifiable ESG goals. So we're able to substantiate that by literally pointing to the power plant that's on premise there and say, look, commercial properties account for about half the energy consumption in America. Here is the renewable generation right there that is better than price parity with the utility. You're saving the tenants money or you're also helping the real estate group make money. And that goes to number two. Um, they either are owner operators for whom energy is a meaningful portion of their OPEX. So reducing it helps improve their net income and give them a competitive advantage. Their customers are demanding ESG certification and they will pick their vendors based upon price parity and ESG benefits. So you have to be cost competitive. Can't just say, hey, I cost more, you know, you're going to pay a premium. But today you can. In fact, you can even be performed cheaper. And then for the, the third-party real estate owners, the commercial groups, private equity-backed, uh, REITs, uh, or so on, um, many of their tenants, particularly for the higher-grade office buildings, commercial properties, they also want to see quantifiable ESG benefits. They want to have higher and better quality of, of infrastructure, and they will just simply pay more rent. Um, they will also sign longer-term contracts. So this is about revenue lift and revenue enhancement, not so much even, frankly, anymore, saving a few pennies on your electric bill, although that helps. Okay, so, so that answer honestly caught me off guard because um, may, maybe it's a stereotype of anything that touches on renewable energy or anything that is environmentally friendly uh, to maybe put on a back burner the ability to make it a profitable business, a thriving business and, you know, an economically sound business. Right off the bat, why do you lead with that? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, first and foremost, it's true. Secondly, I'm, I'm an MIT MBA. I've been doing finance for 20 years. I mean, this is how you get the resources to do your job. Um, and uh, if you can't be profitable, you could be a pilot project. You could be bespoke. Um, now, in fairness to like the assumption that you were leading in, I had a prior career, my first career before getting my business degree was in the public sector. Um, and there's a lot of legitimate reason why things that have create, you know, I'll use my economist term here, externalities or costs that affect other people are going to involve things like taxes, penalties, incentives, and uh, the price of the good may not capture the additional costs. And this has been true 
kind of for renewable energy. New technologies often come in at a higher cost. They've got to drive volume before they come down. And so a lot of people have looked at renewables as, oh, it's that thing that costs more that, you know, do-goody people want and they're making us get. Well, that's, you know, kind of been true in the past. But what you see in a lot of technology, and I've done two two decades in venture capital before this, um, is when you drive volumes up, you drive costs down. And a big reason why we started this company five years ago was renewable energy, particularly solar, had crossed price parity with conventional energy. It finally had reached critical mass enough. And all those solar panels, in case people don't know, they're made at silicon wafer plants. The same economics that are driving the, the lower and lower price of your consumer electronics and the higher and higher functionality are the same thing that are driving solar panels, battery energy storage, and the controls that drive them. Basically, these are computerized electronic power plants. Expect them to follow the same cost curve. So we started this saying, wow, we're crossing price parity with conventional energy. Solar is finally going to take off. It's going to be profitable. People are going to start to make money. What we did not really realize. It did not sink in. It wasn't even so much about solar. It's about storage. Battery storage makes that solar energy controllable, dispatchable. And now you can actually put it all and make that power plant on premise. And now you can actually make it a better property. And we'll come back to that in a second. But um, it doesn't have to be 100% solution. Some people say, well, you know, the sun goes away and it comes down and there's winter and all this. I'm like, yeah, that's true except half the cost of your electric bill is driven by the top 10% of events on the grid. The grid is not very efficient. So if you think about, hey, I can cover 25 to 50% of that need with renewable energy on-prem, you're basically already cutting a lot of the economics away from the utility. But it's, it's so good here. Uh, so so, so I wanna, wanna stop with the, the battery, because the, the Maybe I'm an idiot. And so that's where I get to be on this show here is I, I get to be the one to ask the question. So sometimes I know what I'm asking. Sometimes I don't. But without the battery storage capability, then you're talking about like having to use what's captured when used. Otherwise, it just goes what to the grid, right? Yeah, it's lost or it feeds to the grid. It's intermittent. That's right. right. And then so then you're kind of still stuck with, uh, yeah, I've got maybe like some extra power coming from my solar in the rainy season or in the cloudy season, but I'm still stuck on the grid. So if something major were to happen, you're kind of still dependent on that. But now you're talking about with, with the ability to store, ba- uh, store the energy far more efficient. You have better systems in place on site to store the power. Um, what if you don't use it? Where does that, where does that injury go? Does it just kind of sit there until you choose to use it? Can you sell it? Yeah, no, um, that's put a pin in that, sell it. We'll come back to that in just a second because that's that's an idea where we're going to go. But let me, if I may, take take a pause and let's turn the clock back because sometimes a little perspective helps understand how all this fits together. So I mentioned that this was transformative. This is not a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is a once-in-a-hundred-year opportunity. And that's not an arbitrary date I'm picking up. If we rewind the clock back, to the late 1800s, the Industrial Revolution in America. And you were to go around on your horse, um, around where I live here in New England, you would see these factories and they would have canals and water wheels and they would have smokestacks and boilers. And uh, that energy was powering commercial production. 
It also was powering the general store, the workers' houses, and back then we called it a factory town. And you know, when you read your history books, those are good or bad or, or whatever. But but a whole bunch of people said, hey, you know, this electricity thing, that seems like a good idea. Um, maybe everyone should have it. So we passed some legislation and, and we said, look, we're going to do two things. First and foremost, we're going to create monopolies. We're going to create these things called utilities, and everyone's got to pay them. And the reason for that is we got to pay for this really expensive thing of stringing wires to everyone so everyone gets this great thing called electricity. We're going to build these really big power plants, and not near me, like way out there, and then we're going to string these wires. And that all made a lot of sense back then because we didn't have electricity, and building your own factory and power plant was something for only the few of the privileged. If we now fast forward 100 years and you look at the developing world, they're not doing that. They're not saying, hey, you know what? We really could use energy infrastructure. Let's build a big power plant out there. It's like telecom. They didn't say, hey, let's have a big telecom monopoly and then like string copper wires. And after we do that, you know, maybe we'll think about something better. No, they're going straight to mobile. This is like straight to mobile. This is saying, hey, if I'm going to build energy today, and, and many real estate developers have to, whether they like it or not, um, they'd say, well, why am I paying for upgrades from this major power plant? It's far away. It's costing me a lot. And other people are going to benefit from that. I want my property to benefit from it. Let's put the power plant right there because we can. And so some of our customers like Stream Realty that does um, many dozen uh, commercial uh, logistics warehouses every year. It is giant roofs, not being used for anything else. Put the power plant up there. So you have this underutilized asset, this undervalued asset in many commercial real estate settings, not downtown, not big vertical buildings. We're still going to need central power plants for that. But when you look out in the, the suburban and the rural areas, you have the ability to generate your own power. But there's this other thing that's happening that's coupled with it. Back in those late 1800s, there was this new industry that was just emerging, and it was called the not wasn't called an automobile then. It was called a horseless carriage, and the first ones were powered by coal and wood boilers, and some were powered on electricity. And we standardized on gasoline as a transportation fuel because it does have a lot of good energy properties. It has good energy density, is portable. It's also kind of dangerous and flammable and stuff like that. But we standardized on it because there was this thing called standard oil. And standard oil locked up the means of distribution. Another monopoly locked us in to this choice. Well, these same batteries that I just referred to for uh, coupling with solar, they didn't really start there. They started with electric vehicles because electric vehicles have fewer moving parts, they're lower cost per mile, and those prices are plummeting because with volume. Those same vehicles are parked at the commercial, industrial, multifamily, service buildings during the day. So where are they going to buy their fuel? From the man down the street running the gas station or your property where they're parked anyway? So both those infrastructures now converge at commercial, industrial, and multifamily and mixed-use communities all over America. So this is a trillion-dollar industry that is in the midst of changing hands. And for people who don't realize how much money is at stake, just think about the infrastructure in America. Now think who's going to own it and who's going to profit from it. 
Yeah. So, I mean, to your point on like all the, the, the vehicles parked at the warehouse, last mile delivery and fulfillment is continuing to go further and further out from Center City. It's gone to the burbs and then it goes to even, you know, further out from the burbs, just like suburban areas and rural. And eventually one day we'll have overnight delivery in South Dakota here. And <laughs> I think we actually have that now. But but you know what I mean? Like we'll have m more of that. And But obviously Amazon, you know, being one of those companies that's in that space, they've already been outfitting a lot of their vans with. Oh, almost all the logistics, major logistics companies are moving to electric. And it's, I assure you, it's not out of do-goodiness. It's because electric vehicles have no transmission, no water pump, no fan belt, no hardly any moving parts. There's nothing to break. You know, they have tires. They have a steering wheel. They have windshield wipers. The maintenance on these things is near zero. They're going to last half a million miles. And so... But what, now, but let's just take this a step further. Okay, so yeah, those are really expensive. No one's going to buy them until you get volume up. And when volume goes up, price comes down. So electric vehicles on a per mile basis already have crossed price parity with internal combustion engines. I've, I'm on my third electric vehicle now because we keep upgrading. The first one I bought was already at price parity when I got it. And that was five years ago. I traded in a, a fully paid Acura TL for a brand new Chevy Volt and my monthly expense stayed the same because my Acura was burning $200, $200 a month on gas because of my commute, which is back, by the way, when gas was $2 a gallon. We'll come back to inflation. In a second. Can you imagine how expensive? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. To, to two, $2.50 and $3 yeah. used to hurt. It and, doesn't anymore. And then I was starting to have a fair amount of maintenance because the car was you know, fully paid. Um, now, today, I drive a Tesla. Um, it gets charged off the solar panels in my house. Uh, my equivalent cost per gallon is less than a, it, a, a miles equivalent, is around $1.50. That's amortizing. I don't actually pay a fuel bill because I already paid for those panels. Um, and I don't have to pay the utility anymore for electricity, even though we've had a 25% increase in the past six months in our electric bills because of fuel prices going up. So this this type of, of CapEx investment protects tenants, owners, operators from OpEx inflation. And anybody in operations understands that trade-off. So, but they say, well, but wait, we don't have the capital, we have to invest in ourselves, and this is why we have a business. There are two reasons why we have a business. One, we're very much investors. We're the ones de deploying the assets, making investments, helping shape the overall portfolio. But the other is, it's a commitment to run a power plant. And how you run a power plant, for example, in Massachusetts with the grid and its rules and uh, its strains and stresses is actually different than you do right down the road in Connecticut. Um, you change utility territories. The tariffs are different. The obligations are different. And now I'm going to come back to your question about, well, what happens to that excess? Different areas have different rules about what happens to that excess. In some cases, you can sell it at a premium. In some cases, you have to sell it at a discount. In some places, you're not able to sell it at all. In some places, if you try even to sell it, you're going to get into trouble. Um, and then when you want to start adding in and say, well, hey, you know, either my tenants want electric char vehicle chargers because so they want it as an amenity, or we want it for our fleet, 
Um, now you get in a really complex situation. One is the utility is going to say, well, sure, we're glad to. We sell electricity. Chance to sell more electricity. But you're going to pay for all the upgrades from that big power plant. Most people don't like that. Secondly, um, you're typically going to come in for a maximum solution because you really can't control that power that much uh, because it's all coming from that place far away. Your more optimal cost-efficient solution, this is where you gain real competitive advantage, is to say, well, hey, just as you were saying, let's integrate things like the fleet management system and the route scheduler with the charging infrastructure. Back 100 years, there wasn't a distinction between the consumption electricity and the generation. They were the same. So we use software to do things like help tell the trucks when they need to come back so they can charge with the least amount of fuel to free up the space for the next, optimizing everyone's economics. So this is the type of thing when you start thinking about the world differently and you can actually make the world more profitable. Is that all part of your, um, and I wanted to ask about this, so maybe this is a good yeah. way to segue into it. You guys had recently partnered with and invested into a company called Microgrid Labs. Is that? Yes. And, so and that, that's yeah, related that to functionality I was just here. describing. Exactly. So that ability to talk to the fleet management system and the route scheduler and then optimize um, in conjunction with the electricity generation and the battery energy storage is Microgrid Labs. And so, yes, we made a strategic investment in them. We also, um, Catalyze has been growing very quickly. Um, I mentioned we're five years old. Um, we started with, with a few people. Now we're 170. Uh, we have bought several regional energy developers. We also bought a company that makes a non-penetrating roof attachment. So one of the other things real estate people say is, well, you know, I might think the solar's okay, or oh, maybe my tenants want it, and you know, okay, I, I get like, you know, we can generate our own power, but do not give me any roof leaks. Like that, none of this is worth any of that if if, if any of that happens. And so we bought this company called SolarStrap, and SolarStrap has its own building code. It's been proven out in California for um, more than a decade, um, wind certified up to a couple hundred miles an hour. So it's Come well, on, South Dakota. Oh, yeah, it, it will work just fine. <laughs> um, and it actually bonds to the TPO roof. And we have a roofing partner that will give a 25-year roof uh, guarantee. But this is also back to just, you got to come in and you got to think differently. You've got to think like the owner of the real estate and what's better for their property. Is it to be a, a dumb property? And what I mean by that, it, it doesn't think, it doesn't do anything. The tenants are what gives it the, you know, the energy and the intelligence and functionality or say, no, what makes my property great and what's it makes it better than the one down the street and more valuable, more valuable for rents and more valuable for me to sell it is I want a smart property. I want a property that interacts with today's grid that can draw from it when appropriate, but also dispatch and support it. And there are utilities that are starting to get this, that if you are a regional hub and you can generate power and store it and dispatch it on their signal, they will call on you and pay you to support their grid. So, well, it just um, makes sense, right? Because we already have like power boosting stations that they have to build and maintain depending on the demands of a grid, correct? Absolutely. No, absolutely. And so, and so you save building a peaker plant. We're just talking right, you're, you're actually adding to the, you're actually improving the grid when you, you install one of these on your own properties. Yeah. 
A modern grid, I mean, I sometimes joke a little bit, but a modern grid is going to look a lot like a modern telecom or a computer network. It's just higher voltage. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, it will kill you, but but seriously, <laughs> yeah, it is. And, and I think that's what puts off a lot of people and like, oh, we better not touch this. Well, maybe you shouldn't. But but as a society, we are going to be better off if instead of having giant power plants that are vulnerable, like in Texas last year, to freezing hey, up Texas this year, it's already this year, power losses where everyone loses their power. Utilities are beginning to say, you know what? Hey, if you guys build a multi-megawatt solar array over here and have batteries to, 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 to be able to dispatch it, if we have grid loss over here, we can shut your circuit off. Will you give us support? And I had one general manager of a utility say, you know what? You can provide us an invaluable service by just keeping the neighborhood up a little longer and let us dispatch our trucks to the people who really need it. And yeah, that's not a problem. We can't keep it up forever. Might start looking like a third world country, like, hey, the sun's setting, everyone's lights are going off, we'll get them back up to our morning. I don't think we really, it's not, it doesn't need to be a 100% solution, but if we buy them two or three hours, it can make a huge difference in a storm. And that difference isn't just like, hey, my refrigerator kept running. It's the nursing home is still up. You know, look at what happened in Florida a couple of years ago in the hurricanes when the nursing homes lost power. So, and then we force everyone to buy backup generators and say, well, now I have this obligatory tax to buy backup generators. Well, why not just run a profitable generator that runs 24 seven anyway? So a modern grid is gonna look like a network and the utility is gonna look like a market maker and a network operator, not a power plant guy with a big lever there. Let me ask you something that's a little outside of what you guys currently offer. Uh, and this is like a, is this possible kind of thing? So, um, you know, back in 2006, 2008, I worked for a privately held home builder outside of Philly. And, and we were doing, we, we were doing pretty good when I started. And then like a month and coincidentally, wasn't my fault. Mm -hmm. I was really just the maintenance guy. Okay. It wasn't I promise. Yeah. It was just, it was just timing, right? We went from 50 homes a month to 15 homes a month in delivering. You know, and I got to learn a lot about business that then I went to college and can't still understand why I went to college. But that's another story for another day. And, um, you know, one of the things I took away from that, though, in one of my very first college projects was building a business plan for an environmentally friendly neighborhood. I had this thought, I was like, what if all of the, the lights in our neighborhood were powered by solar? And what if we had thermal energy for every home that was in the neighborhood? But as you're talking, I'm thinking... What if the home builder, as a standard feature, at no cost to the homeowner, you know, in a, a community of a thousand residential homes, built a system like what you have, and they maintained that power source, you know, on premise, so that long term, right? If they're, you know, they'd have a, a buy into the neighborhood and some sort of like touch to all those homes, especially for those who are doing build to rent right now, a build to rent neighborhood. What if they built and already thought through the system of solar across all the homes already, and they maintain their own power plant? Is that something that's truly feasible? Well, I hate to spoil it for you. It's already underway very much, in, especially in California. That doesn't so, spoil it. That's great. That's good yeah, news. No, it's, it's, it's a real thing. So um, there are a couple elements to it. So um, some people may be aware California passed a law um, 
a year or so ago that new all new construction from residential homes need to have uh, solar on them. And, that, and that, that's certainly along the lines of what you were just saying. But it's also only a little bit of a partial solution because although it does certainly increase the penetration and that in of renewable energy and drive, you know, drive that um, cost curve down with volume, um, it doesn't control it, right? An individual homeowner doesn't want to really be running a power plant and, and a, someone who builds neighborhoods of homes said like, I'm in the business of building neighborhoods of homes. I'm not in the business of running a power plant. And that's exactly why we partner with those people. So several, several of our major national customers uh, and partners, a couple things here. Well, first of all, most of them have come to us after um, they've actually tried it themselves. And they said, you know what? We did one or two. We don't want to do anymore. It's a mess. I mean, we are we do it in one town. It's one way. We go into the next town. It's different. We go back to the same town. The rules have all changed. And so this isn't as simple as just hardware no, and wanting this to is not because there's just... There's legal, there's regulation, there's utility rules that if you don't know them, even if you're good at building buildings, if you don't know these other pieces, you, it's not going no, to work. No, and that's on the development well. side. I mean, energy law and energy regulation in this country is very much a matter of state law, not federal. So it's actually 50 plus different jurisdictions, but even it's more so that each utility territory has its own rules. And then um, when you, especially when you have municipal utilities, like the largest municipal utility in the United States is Los Angeles, they get to write even their own rules. So the rules are different and that's on the development side, but then on the operations, you also have this little thing called responsibility. So you're now running a power plant. And as part of doing that, again, for this modern efficient grid, um, you are expected to participate. Uh, participation is is an evolving area, but again, I think because we've already been through it, um, telecom is a pretty good uh, analogy. It's not perfect, but you know, if we rewind the clock back again, now this is like early '90s, we had this thing called AT and T, and it was a monopoly, and you paid it long distance, and your phone bill looked like rent my phone, local service, regional long distance interstate long distance. And that was your entire phone bill. If you pull up your electric utility bill today, it looks really similar, almost identical. Um, we broke up AT&T and the first thing we had was, hey, cheaper long distance. Some of us remember these ads from Sprint, you know, like only 25 cents a minute. Oh, less than 25 cents a minute if you call nights and weekends. Oh, 10 cents a minute if you call like after 7 p.m. Or... I remember these commercials growing up. I remember this them. is renewable energy the past few years where bigger and bigger solar arrays. And if you read the press, it's like five cent per kilowatt power purchase agreement, three cent, two cent lowest ever. Well, why? Because like telecom, you know how much money it costs to generate one more kilowatt hour of solar? How much money it costs to send to do one more minute of long distance? Nothing. Zero. We use free fuel. That's the secret here. And so when your fuel is free, your prices go to the bottom. But wait, people are paying more for telecom now than they ever were. Why? Because they get more benefit and there's more functionality. Because these things we call mobile phones are like supercomputers that do all sorts of stuff that we never imagined. And nobody would be saying, you know what, I'm going to run my own phone company. I mean, you know, I got I got my house. I'm going to run a phone company. No, you wouldn't do that. No. So you're stifling innovation. And today we're seeing this in electric power. 
So we're looking at things like resiliency. We're looking at the firmness and the quality of power. Um, one medical center uh, CFO told us point blank, he said, you know, you think we're running a hospital? We're actually running a big data center that happens to take care of people. All this sensitive electronic equipment, renewable, and we want renewable energy between us and the grid because every time that power plant sends a little blip, it hurts our MRIs. We have millions of dollars of equipment that your solid state electronic renewable energy can protect. And like, well, you don't normally wake up and think like, well, that's an obvious benefit of solar energy, but it's solid state electronics. It's back to that same thing that is driving your consumer electronics. So we are seeing all sorts of emergent benefits and the property owners, Nate, you mentioned uh, home building, um, as one CEO of a private equity firm we worked with said, James, you had me at free covered parking. It never occurred to me that putting in solar would let me have free covered parking. Do you know how much extra we charge people for covered parking? So if now you think you're like, hey, it's not solar energy, it's a carport canopy that pays for itself, you can raise your rents. But, uh, but if you were the property owner, you'd have to go spend a million dollars or more to put in all the covered parking and look at the return on investment and is everyone going to pay the rent and so on. It's like, we don't care. You put in covered parking because the money is paying for is the electricity you're using. Oh, and by the way, we're going to charge you less for the electricity than you. The utility is we're going to save you 10 to 20%. And CEO said, James, you don't even have to save me any money. But, you know, I don't like, because you had me at free covered parking. So you start thinking about things like that that aren't obvious outgrowths you start making electricity a differentiated good because it's made there on the property. That I, I love that. I, I give, um, you know, I, I've been running marketing teams now for the last few years and I've been working in marketing for some time. And one of the things I, I when I talk about anytime we're trying to differentiate, I always use the banana. It's like a banana is a banana is a banana. And why do we pay different prices for the banana? And usually it has to come with well, because if you're at a gas station, it's the only fresh food. But at your grocery store, right? I mean, it's the banana is 39 to 49 cents. Like it's almost always the same price per, per pound. Unless there's something unique, like a baby banana or a green banana or an organic banana. But outside of that, it's all the same. But I, And I hear what you're saying here. Like we're now at this moment where there's an opportunity to actually differentiate Maybe it's the utility of the property or the experience because of what this brings. You know, you talk about protecting vital medical equipment, not something I've ever thought of. And I've had a lot of MRIs, uh, but, you know, that's it's a fascinating uh, thought here. We have a lot of covered parking in, in South Dakota, by the way, but that's just because we also get a fair amount of hail. So I don't I don't know how panels do with uh, we had three to four inch diameter hail a few days ago. Yeah, we're not really excited about three to four inches. The, 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 panel, the panels can take a lot. The panels are really pretty resilient, but yeah. That one I might be a little tough one. Hey, I wanna, I wanna transition a little bit here because I know we've, we've gone into like maybe like a little bit of the nerd zone here, if you will, into the tech and I, and I love that. I wanna talk a little bit about the company itself and how it's growing five years old. You guys have grown an employee count. Is there any particular market that you're seeing the most adoption from when you have these discussions? Or is this something across the country uh, you're getting adoption from different clients? Yeah, a great set of questions. So a couple of things. Um, uh, I'll touch on the company and then we can talk on uh, touch on adoption. 
So yes, I did mention that Catalyze is, is five years old. We've grown from a, a small team to 170 today. Um, I failed to, and I really should give a lot of credit to our private equity backers. So uh, we're the largest single uh, company in uh, the NCAP Investments um, Energy Transition Fund. And uh, we also have uh, significant backing from Yorktown Energy Partners and Innisfear and um, uh, Colorado. And um, NCAP is, the, I believe, the largest midstream oil and gas private equity firm in the country. They manage about $36 billion. The NCAP Energy Transition Fund, and notice that name, Energy Transition, is $1.2 billion. Uh, Yorktown is also a multi-billion oil and gas private equity fund. And um, I was uh, talking with a friend recently and he said, you know, I, I don't really understand, like, you guys have all this oil and gas money. Like, those guys don't get renewables, do they? I said, oh, no, I don't think you understand. Do you know what the number two renewable energy state in the country is? He's guessing all over the map. You know, it's like, number one, yeah, California. Can I guess? I got that one. Can yep, I guess? Can guess? Mm-hmm. Okay, Utah. No, it's Texas. Oh, okay, and it's not because they're a bunch of greeny do-gooders. Um, it's because it's a deregulated, basically unregulated market, and Texas has an amazing wind profile in the West that's not correlated with the wind profile on the coast and a great solar profile in the middle. And all these oil and gas people all own the rights to all that land and in the long lines to bring the transmission through. So they got the memo a long time ago that the money was shifting from one technology, oil, to another technology, solar and wind, and they went in big time. And it was actually them and our chairman, Sean Cumberland, who said to me, James, don't be a tech company selling software, enabling other people. The money's in owning the assets. And I said, well, Okay, I mean, that makes sense, but Sean, that's going to take a lot of money. He said, well, that's what we have. So we have very large, very capitalist-oriented resources behind us. But then that begs your next question is, well, well where's the opportunity? I mean, it's one, I mean, investors of that size do not just step into small markets. And two th- issues. One, as, as I was mentioning when we were starting the company, we'd already crossed price parity with conventional energy, at least on the coasts. And it, the coasts are a good start, not because, again, they're renewable, greeny do-gooders, but because land is expensive and your electricity bill's really high. So at the time, we were paying 15 to 20 cents per kilowatt hour in the Northeast. Today, it's more like 30. And that's the other driver is inflation is now making the middle of the company profitable. So while regular utility prices have been going up, our costs have been going down, and we've become more and more competitive with the rest of the company, which, country, which is why we're moving whole hog right now ourselves into Texas, many other Midwestern states, as well as on the coast. So yes, today, the opportunity is very much nationwide, and most of our real estate partners are nationwide or at least super regional. Uh, whom, you know, doing a small local project is just impossible. Yeah. When you're, when you're, when you're out prospecting or, I mean, I imagine, you know, this is really a relationships business. This is going to be about trust. There's a lot of trust that would go into anyone. To hey, you took the words that right out of my mouth. I, I usually tell the team the number one thing we're selling is trust. 
So, you think so, you're going to let me on my property for 20, 30 years and generate electricity? You're nuts. Unless, it, you know, the, you've earned is trust. The owner, yeah. Is it the owners of the, you know, the, you know, the firms of these properties that is uh, ideal client or is it tenants who may have uh, a network of properties that, you know, they have long-term leaseholds on and, and high incentives to reduce costs or increase, uh, you know, energy efficiency that would pull you in to be able to, um, you know, contract with them and, 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 you know, get one of your systems up and running on their, on their premise. Yeah. Uh, today it's mostly the owners. Um, and um, it's the owners who um, are responding to tenant demands. Uh, they've seen what some of the large tenants have done, uh, like Amazon, just putting in the RFPs for their leases, like you shall have renewable energy, U.S. government. We work with a GSA uh, leasing real estate group. Uh, U.S. government a long time ago said, we'll give you extra points on the RFP um, for um, uh, having on-premise rene and renewable energy. And so now it's the owners uh, who said, well, you know, we've been hearing this, you know, from some tenants or some early adopters, but now there are enough out there. And the other guys started winning higher credit worthy, longer term leases, higher paying rents away from us. Well, that's not going to happen anymore. We want you guys to roll out, not just like here and some pilots, across our whole portfolio. I've got one group in particular, the two senior managing directors, I think call my cell phone two or three times a week. Why aren't you moving fast enough? Don't you know we've got people moving in? We're building this new thing. Can't you make it bigger? Can't you get this deployed? Well, why? Because there's money in it, James. Didn't we discuss that? You know, so um, that that is the urgency you get because these people right now, the real estate group, is, real estate market is hyper competitive and people know and we're looking at a rising cap rate environment there is so much money at stake every extra dollar of income or rent counts and that translates into portfolio value not utility bill cost i appreciate that perspective and going that far out on those conversations that you're having though when you when, when you're you know, discussing like, hey, this is the potential solution and this is what this could bring. I'm sure the, the number of hurdles and reasons not to invest, there's got to be plenty that you have heard over the last few years. What are some most common objections to making these improvements as you've been talking about? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, th I think another way to, to ask your question is like, you know, where's the competition? Um, uh because I do, I do say internally, like, don't forget, her number one competition is do nothing. And there's, there's a lot of do nothing out there. Um, there's a lot of do nothing because we do have 100, 120 plus years of history of, uh, well, you know, I just call the utility and they bring in some service and this sounds complicated. And I got a lot of other stuff. So, you know, um, I would say earlier in the company's history, when we were actively calling on people, I would often get, you know, objections along the lines of, you know, this doesn't move the needle for us. It's a headache. It causes complications. Um, you know, you have different stakeholders in a real estate group. So, you know, senior managing director, CFO, it's like, it's not enough money. I don't care. 
property manager. Oh yeah, I've 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 heard about that stuff. I had a property over here. There were holes in the roof. There were leaks. Like, don't want it. No, thank you very much. Um, the tenant relations specialist or asset managers usually will say, well, we really would like it, but we need that a tenant want it because we don't really do anything until tenants ask for it. So there was a, a drive and a motivation. I would say that all changed about two years ago. And um, I think it was really driven by the capital markets. Um, again, now our main customer is the, is the, the senior managing director, CEO, or, or and or CFO of a private equity real estate group. Uh, I have been told multiple times point blank that um, uh, they are being, uh, have demands from their capital sources to quantify not only their ESG goals, but they want to access more and more capital. Now, I think this is a phenomenon of the groups that are at the scale to be tapping into endowments, sovereign wealth funds, Wall Street banks. And it's not probably a surprise that some of our customers are, in fact, the Wall Street firms themselves that also coincidentally own large amounts of commercial real estate in their investment portfolios because they're multifaceted institutions. Um, you know, your regional development group that may have a couple hundred million dollars of assets, maybe using commercial bank money, maybe it's not a priority for them. Um, it's also not as complex and interesting a problem until they continue to lose market share and tenants to the bigger guys who've been uh, bringing, uh, frankly, greener money to have a, a double pun there um, and gain competitive advantage. Um you know, I think having the roof leaks issue is always something comes up. Um, and I think, you know, that's generally been solved. Um, there are a lot of challenges in dense urban environments. And this is the reason why we also do what's called community solar. So community solar is a remote, larger array that you fractionally assign renewables to buildings. It's a good solution for portfolio assets that just don't have the footprint to self-generate, or they have a smaller footprint relative to their need, and you supplement it with that. And that says, well, look, you still have one throat to choke. Like, we're still the one providing in partnership with the utility, right? The utility's still very much there working together. Um, and increasingly, I'm having utilities say, well, you know, wow, thank you. We're having a lot of load growth here. Again, you can you can help support our infrastructure and make our assets last longer, too. So that's when literally i mean this coming week i'm sitting down once again the real estate groups with me on one side the utilities on the other and all three of us are saying well we're going to build this new giant commerce center what's the smarter way to do it utility fund and have to do everything which will take several years or do they use existing circuits catalyze build on top of them and provide benefit back and that's the type of joint modern solution that lets the real estate group just build stuff faster and the utility benefit. You guys are crushing it. Uh, there's just so much in there. And and, and truthfully, like I, I'm, I think I'm gaining wrinkles in the brain by the second here as we're listening, I'm listening in here, but also lots of ideas. And I just see, um, appreciate the passion in which that you're um, sharing this here. Um, not to make a, a hard transition here, but we are going to transition towards the bottom of the show uh, for a segment I like to call For the Future. For the Future is when I get to ask each guest who comes to the show to give their best predictions based on the following four questions. Since this is Back to the Future, I feel like you may have an advantage. 
Uh, but James, are you ready to play? Uh, let's go. Come all on, right. I got my crystal. One. Got my crystal ball all polished up here. <laughs> question number one: What does Catalyze look like one year from now? Oh well, since I have a business plan for that, that's actually an easier question. Um, we're about twice as big as headcount. We're currently operating in 20 states. Uh, we'll be in 30. And we'll have uh, probably double the number of partnerships and running several hundred megawatts of operating assets. So uh, to give you a sense of that scale, a megawatt is like two football fields. So we're already in like the hundreds of football field size, like, but it's spread out, right? It's all it's all over the place. So, yeah. And I think the other part a year from now is that's all those those emergent storage assets are starting to be interoperable with the grid. We've got our first ones in the field now. Uh, actually, turning on two more here in Massachusetts uh, this coming week. These storage storage, by the way, each unit is the size of a tractor trailer that's full of batteries. They bring it on on giant cranes and such. So. Uh, they don't let me throw the switch. Uh, you gotta, you gotta literally stand back for it. Um, it will kill you and, and hurt while you're dying. But those assets are going to be benefiting the grid, and that's exciting. That is awesome. Question number two here. Uh, I went back and forth on a lot of different ones here, but I settled on this. What year is it? Twenty percent of all commercial industrial properties are outfitted with some sort of solar energy system. Twenty percent. Twenty percent in the U.S. We'll we'll stick with the U.S. here. Yeah, in the U.S. Twenty twenty four. Really? This is the thing. Oh, this is the thing. I think people don't understand. People are like throwing out like, oh, maybe by like twenty fifty, we'll be a hundred percent renewable. What technology adoption curve has followed that type of path? Like none. Think about this. Is again, this is like mobile phones. They're like, well, we already have telephones. We're not going to replace them. How fast did mobile phones get adopted? Like you went from the, you know, it finally took some dominant design, right? This is like the key thing from tech. Remember, I come from venture capital. When you get it right, it goes nonlinear fast. And I love these little charts that um, the U.S. Energy Information Agency did. Of like, well, here's solar penetration over the U.S. for the next 10 years. It's going to be like 3%, 3 3.2%, 3.4%. It's like this little tiny creep. And the next year, and then people like us would say, you know, it's going to be a lot faster. It's geometric. Like, no, 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 no. It's linear. And the next year they come back and they say, oh, uh, it wasn't 3.2, it was 4.2. And I'm like, okay, well, it's still a small number, but it's actually a big increase in a small number. And then after that, it'll creep up linearly. And then you come back and we'd say, no, 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 it's geometric. Trust us. This is a system dynamic. Those of you who like math, this is system dynamics. It's a virtual cycle. It's going to accelerate. No, no, no. It's going to be linear. Next year, they come back. Oops. Now, just a freak year. It went up again even more. But it's going to be smooth after that. If you go back and look at the last 10 years, solar adoption in residential and utility scale, it is a hockey stick. Commercial and industrial is now hit that inflection point and that system dynamic that that flywheel is going two years wow love it and that's something that hopefully we'll still be doing the show because now i'm gonna have to make myself a little calendar reminder to i'll give you a call and we'll yeah find out. Set, set, set a reminder <laughs> hey siri remind me in two years there we go question number three here what's one interesting do you think will continue but you wish would go away Ooh, can i say pandemic yeah, I mean, supply chain. Yeah, so we didn't list parade of horribles here. Um, 
Yeah, supply chain disruption. I mean, if I want to make a counter argument against the high rate of growth that I just said, it's supply chains. You know, just getting parts has been a real challenge the past 12 months. Um, you know, we used to think like things like breakers, transformers, you know, these basic things that you you build these things. You know, you like go to the electrical supply store or one in, in a month or so, even a fancy one, expensive one you get. No, you're looking at like year and a half lead times. And uh, there's now this infamous um, uh, tariff case on panels, solar panels um, that the Biden administration just hit pause on. But what happened was that further disrupted a lot of the supply chains. And now there are developers all over the country that don't even have access to panels. Like they can't build projects. That's a big problem for the industry. And even though the Biden administration said we're going to put pause on that, the supply chains have already been shocked. We were very, very, very lucky. And I think this is having uh, private equity backing. Our growth rate was so big this year. We said, you know, we need to get ahead of just like we can't buy retail. We're going to just buy straight from the factory. And so we actually had all the panels we need for this year, over 80 megawatts, arrive Port of Los Angeles, Port of New York before March. So we already actually have them on site, but you know, looking forward to next year, I mean, we're already placing our orders, trying to get ahead of this. So yeah, supply chain disruptions, uh, no thank you. That's a, that's a real problem on, on adoption, not, not the economics. Question number four here for the future, what's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of tech advances? Triple net leases. Oh, hey, oh, that's a first for that answer. Oh, yeah. Talk about a historical artifact that people don't question. Why do we have triple net leases? So many people in real estate think like, well, of course we have triple net leases, you idiot. No. Why do you have triple net leases? Because people built these big power plants, okay? The reason why the tenants pay the electric bills and you don't is you're not in that business because you got out of it 100 years ago. When now that infrastructure becomes competitive advantage, the smart money says, well, we got to stop that. There's this thing in the industry that's already been going around a bit. They call them green leases. Let me also tell you what they are from a, from a, uh, so a green lease, a green lease is a marketing term that, hi, you're going to have your renewable energy bundled into your lease. And so you are going to be renewable and sustainable. And isn't this a really nice thing? This is something that's along the lines of like lead certification, although it's not a certified thing. There are people who are beginning to certify uh, the renewables. But the real point from a real estate economic standpoint is you've now bundled in the amenity and you increase, most of these people increase the rent more than the cost of that amenity because that's what bundling does. But you couldn't do it because there are laws in the books that say you can't mark up the utilities power. You have to sell the utilities power at the, the price that it comes. So triple net leases are not an economic benefit to real estate groups. Triple net leases are an artifact, at least the, the, the net for energy, is an artifact of monopoly utilities getting to own the customer. Or as I say to real estate groups all the time, like you won that tenant, you made that relationship, you put the contract with them to, for the economics of this building. Why on earth do you then send them down the street to pay the man? That's your tenant and your money. Why are they paying the man? And at today, they're paying the man more and more. And again, a lot of the smart money is like, oh, we already got that. 
Remember back, James, utilities included residential units? We are so going back to that because people will pay more to have their, util- their, their energy bundled in than they will if it's a separate bill. And you know you got a submeter. There's some technolo- technological things. Remember, this is interop, so they just don't like throw in unlimited. But we're starting to do things like have unlimited car charging. It's like the same with your cell phone. What's the most popular rate plan for mobile phones? Unlimited. It, it, it would make a lot of sense. Uh, there's you can only drive so many miles. Yeah, you can only talk so much on your phone. You know, so be consumer friendly. And consumer friendly and corporate business friendly is, hey, let's give you a, to use the more real estate term, a gross lease. So yeah, I'm seeing triple net, triple net's going for a sunset. You know, this is a little bit of a a digression here, but I I have to share it because you brought up the unlimited thing and you were just in Houston and it's totally related. Have you ever heard of the rapper named Mike Jones? No, I'm sorry. I'm not very fun. Okay. That's okay. Well, Mike Jones made- But you can educate me. Yeah, I'm going to give it to you. 281-330-8004. That was his phone number. And I know that because it's in one of his songs. Actually, it was in many of his songs. And the story goes, he actually had a different phone number. He put it in all of his mixtapes. He branded himself by constantly saying his name in rap songs. And then his friend tipped him off and said, hey, you got to get this unlimited phone plan. Because people were calling him from his phones just on the mixtape tour. And so then he got the unlimited and it might've been like 18, I think honestly it was 18T. He got so many calls. We're talking like MTV level visibility. He had hits. He was like billboard top 100 hits. And his phone number got blown up so much. AT&T actually took his number temporarily because, uh, you know, it was, oh, Sprint. He went to Sprint Nextel. I think it was a, a Nextel deal. Yeah. And uh, it was too popular beyond what they thought was possible for unlimited. When they couldn't handle the capacity. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's and that's so. something, again, I think utilities know, telecom certainly knows, and you can do this in electricity too, is, uh, look, if you go unlimited, you're always going to have those one or two people that like blow the whole thing up. But on average, if you price it right, you're better off. The other thing is there's this thing called quality of service and you can rate limit and throttle. And I think a lot of people with their data plans have learned that you do this. We know so, what that's like for internet TV. Yeah. Oh, well, exactly. But if you're doing it again, this is where you have an obligation. If you're just putting in dumb electric vehicle chargers or, hey, the utility, here, here's, here's a little trick. You want a little safety tip here? When the utility says we'll give you two free electric vehicle chargers, read the fine print. You might ask, why are they doing that? They're not doing it because they like giving away electric vehicle chargers. It's like, here's the free razor that only fits our blades. So um, once you put that, put those in, or you just put in, you know, like, again, the phone number that doesn't really have any intelligence behind it. Well, yeah, of course things blow up, right? That's why it's an obligation to manage it wisely and so maybe one person, you know, is wants to charge at a higher speed. Maybe they pay a little bit more, but the person who still needs something still gets some load balancing. And and so all our software controls will enable that. It allows the price discrimination. Say, hey, that's more valuable to you. Unless and someone else says, hey, I'm I'm home for the evening. I'm not even driving for two days. Give me the lower rate. Take some time. 
And then that manages um, the uh, the cost exposure, not only the operations, but also the, the capital uh, investment into that system. So again, I think you bring up a great example. Uh, the transition to mobile phone is actually in many ways very much like the transition to an electric grid because electric vehicles are mobile. They are they are load and usage that moves around from point to point, and it's no longer just the big factory sitting there taking electricity from the power plant. It's a very dynamic grid, and it can also be interop. So you you need to have a lot of intelligence to to run it. But again, you know, to come back to the real estate point, why does that matter? Because the smart tenants, the ones who want electric vehicles, the ones who want smart infrastructure, the ones who are willing to pay more, they want it. And that's why we see higher rents and better access to capital. That's simple. It makes sense. James, we're going to pull it into the home stretch here. We got three more. This is so our listeners get to know you better. First one is what are you reading? What am I reading? Oh my gosh. Wow. Um, you want the truthful answer to that? I'm yeah. brushing up on my I'm brushing up on my Russian. So first career, remember I said I was, you know, in the um the public sector. Um, I worked for the U.S. government, had several different roles, and uh, uh, part of that time in the mid-90s, I was the uh, Environment Science Technology Officer for the Office of Russian Affairs at the State Department. Uh, I have six years of U.S. government Russian language training, and um, uh, you know, was a diplomat. Uh, I had the entire U.S.-Russian technical collaboration portfolio uh, when I, I was in my late 20s. Um, the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, it was mainly our main mission at the time was a jobs program for out of work Russian military scientists. And that's what led me to go to business school at MIT. Um, the hyper nerdiness I'm sure is coming across in many ways. Um, and I've said, you know what, with the crisis in Ukraine and living here in the Northeast, we're probably going to see a lot of Ukrainian refugees here and it's time to brush up with my Russian to lend out a helping hand. So I'm, I'm, and, and also all my Russian language training is like, very official and very stuffy and i like don't know how to order groceries and stuff like that so i gotta i'm gonna brush up on my i am brushing up on my russian very cool that is very cool question number two who are you learning from oh wow um it's more like who i'm not learning from um one of the things i love about this company and this industry right now is everyone needs to be a lifelong learner if you are not you will die uh, is I think what's come across here is the rate of change is so significant that you've got to be just incredibly intellectually curious, but at the same time, very applied. You can't be like this academic theoretician. I just like thinking big thoughts. You got to say, wow, there's some new ideas. Let's put them into practice, but we also have to put them into practice in a way they're going to last 30 years. Um, so people within this company, uh, are not just master electricians and developers and finance professionals and lawyers. They're also doing things like just out of their own, you know, natural tendencies, um, going back for additional degrees. Uh, they're musicians. They're, I'm not the only one who's studying a foreign language in the company at the moment, even though we're a domestic company. And I also learn uh, from our partners. I mean, I've been on a five-year rapid learning course in commercial real estate um, that. I didn't have before uh, all sorts of things that I didn't really appreciate and understand in their own complexity. And I'm learning from the utilities. I mean, it's like therapy sessions sometimes with them. It's like, wow, you know, 
I don't think you really appreciate the problems we have. I'm like, well, lend me your ear because let's try to find a better solution. I don't think there's a conversation I come out of that I'm not learning something these days. It's uh, obviously fascinating. Last one here. What inspires you? Oh, wow. That's an easy one. I really like big, hairy, complex problems that involve the world ending. Like you have me at like it's dangerous and can destroy the planet. I'm there. Um, remember that first career, like post-Soviet Russian military nuclear infrastructure collapse? Like that was awesome. Um, when I went to business school, it was to continue privatization in, in Russia. Venture capital was a little bit of a of a side business, but also like, you know, hey, let's take small ideas and make huge change. I just got tired of like peer-to-peer -peer apps for sandwich sharing or whatever the latest trend was. Um and this, I mean, my it, we started the show talking about the national parks and we and look at the recent catastrophe in Yellowstone, unprecedented. Well, like, yeah, you know, this week's hundred year flood is unprecedented. Let's, but you know, there's next week's too. And um, and seriously, my my inner environmentalist and my inner capitalist are very happy because um, back, you know, again, twenty five years ago when I was at state. I had Kyoto Protocol and Montreal Protocol as part of, of my portfolio. And, and those of you who may not know what those are, is Kyoto Protocol is, is climate change, it's carbon um, emissions. And Montreal Protocol, and, and it hasn't been very successful, obviously. Montreal Protocol was um, uh, chlorofluorocarbons, and it was very successful. And we're actually making progress at closing the ozone hole gap because of the Montreal Convention. Um, the same issues we were debating back in the mid-90s for Kyoto Protocol and a three degree Celsius um, ceiling increase as being the sort of state change that we didn't want to find out what was beyond it, we're down to one and a half now, people. So even if you say, oh, well, you know, I'm not so worried, you know, like, you know, it isn't going to be that bad. Fine. You can think that all day long. I'm really sort of not into empirical learning on like, is the planet going to change or not? I hope it all works out. I'll go along with like the naysayers all day long. Like, I hope you're right and I hope I'm wrong. But the problem is there's only way to find out and it's to live it. And so what motivates me is like, wow, you earn the privilege with the capital markets to harness the type of money that allows you to make a difference. But the only way that's going to happen is you have to do it profitably for your investors and you have to do it profitably for your partners. Although, and you also have to do it profitably and better for the tenants and the people who are going to use it. Otherwise, no one will do anything. And it's that win-win-win that absolutely has to happen for us to make a difference. Both can be true at the same time. James, I don't care what you say when, when you mentioned that you uh, said you're not very cool when I asked you about listening to rap. I think you're, I think you're very cool. And I greatly appreciate you spending so much time with me today. Um, I feel like we probably could have continued for quite a long ways. Um, but I, I do have this thing where I'm like, well, maybe we'll, we'll do five hour episodes yet. Uh, we'll save one day. Uh, it, a lot of people would tune out, but you know what? Um, it's a great walk down the trail. Um, there's a lot of land to cover literally and figuratively. And, um, you know, as, as we would say in Russian, спасибо большое, um, I'm very happy to be here on your podcast. Thank you for the privilege. And um, anytime, Nate, always, always a pleasure.
Yeah, yeah. Before we sign off, James, for those who want to learn more about Catalyze and or connect with you, where do they go and how do they do that? Yeah, so um, Catalyze, finding out about Catalyze is pretty simple. It's catalyze.com. Uh, there's also a nice little video there that gives a little bit of overview about this grid change. It's only a minute and a half, much better than me. Um, and then, um, you know, my bio is on there. Um, having a name like James Geschweiler also makes it really easy to find me. Um, very Googleable. But um, yeah, the adventures of James Geschweiler continue. Uh, fun fact also, I'm a rower, and you will also often find me on the Charles River. It's a lovely place. There we go. If you can't find James on LinkedIn, uh, head out to the river and perhaps... Early morning. It's 6 a.m., folks. There it is. <laughs> Early riser. <laughs> Thanks so much. We'll, we'll catch you later, James. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Nate. Pleasure. Well, thanks for listening to the Tech Nest Podcast. You can always get future episodes delivered to you directly by subscribing to the podcast in your favorite app store. You can also join the newsletter. Head over to technest.io or finledger.com slash newsletters to get all future episodes, updates, and more sent to you right in your inbox. Last but not least, we appreciate your support. Please go ahead and give us a rating and review in your app store. This helps others discover the podcast and know that it's a great worthy listen. We'll see you next week.